So we open up chapter 1 of the book of 1 Corinthians. I'll read, and then we'll do some introduction. The nature of the book of 1 Corinthians, the nature of the city of Corinth, is actually really important for us to know and understand why and what Paul is writing about. He doesn't just sit down and go, well, I think I'll write a letter to some people in a city. There's a very purposeful meaning to why he's writing, and knowing a little bit of the background can help you understand the problems they're having, as well as the wording and the ways that he approaches their problems. So chapter 1, verse 1 begins with Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a simple introduction, a very common way of writing a letter. Remember, when we read the word epistle, we're going to read two interesting words, apostle and epistle, and they're easy to get confused. The letter is an epistle, and that's all epistle means. It's just a letter. Now, if Paul was living at our time, it would probably say, you know, the email from Paul to the church in Corinth, because people just don't write letters anymore. So a lot of information, a lot of important communication is lost because we write a quick email and then we read it and we delete it. And aren't we glad the book of 1 Corinthians didn't get deleted, that it was preserved so we could read it and study it and think about the great truths in there. So Paul introduces himself first. That was the way they wrote letters in that day. The introduction, he signs it first, and then he talks about who he's writing to. The church in Corinth, Corinth is a city in Greece. It's in southern Greece. And the really strategic location of the city of Corinth meant that it was extremely wealthy. I mean, you had a lot of money, a lot of culture passing through that city. I mean, it's like New York City. Commerce, culture, Wall Street would have been there. You know, all of that made Corinth a very prosperous city. So you had the north-south traffic, you had the east-west traffic, sailors in port for the night or for a week or however long it would be, all of that kind of thing happening. I tell people, I think the city of Corinth could be defined by sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. Well, the roll part is they roll the boats across from one side to the other. Now, by the way, in the 1800s, at the time of the emperors of Rome, they had proposed a canal, which was never completed until the 1800s. Nowadays, if you go to Corinth, you will see that actual canal that uh, connects the two ports on the two sides. So now you can just sail right on through. But in Paul's day, you couldn't do that. So that's the roll part. What about the rock part? Well, the rock is not just any rock. It's the Acroporinth. On top of there is the temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love, the love goddess. So that was a prominent place. Now, there was lots of spiritual things going on in Corinth, just like there are in Charlottesville, just like there are in America. Lots of people that are spiritual. There are all kinds of gods and goddesses in the Greek pantheon. Aphrodite seems to be one of the most prominent. But Poseidon, you guys have seen Poseidon with his triton. So he was worshipped there for sailors, I'm sure. were looking for a blessing from Poseidon for their trips and their safety on the water. And you had the god Asclepius. Asclepius is the healing god. It was a snake god. His temple would be filled with snakes and they believed in the healing power of snakes. So they would make a sculpture of whatever body part they wanted to be healed. And they would take it to the temple of Asclepius and they would put that there and ask for a healing from Asclepius. All kinds of body parts, including uh, sexual body parts. Because that's the next part. Rock, roll, sex, 
That's the temple of Aphrodite. That was where to worship Aphrodite, to worship the goddess of love. Well, at night, a thousand temple prostitutes would descend out from the temple of Aphrodite to allure and entice men into worshiping Aphrodite through sexual activity. So very immoral city, the drugs part, I refer you to the 33, no less than 33 wine shops that were found along the main drag by archaeologists in the city of Corinth. And if you wanted to get an idea of what it would have been like to live in Corinth, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you would have to combine maybe Amsterdam, New York City, and Las Vegas. A number of years ago, I had a chance to go out to Las Vegas for a instruction on inductive Bible study at a church out there. And at night, we went down to the Vegas Strip and handing out tracts and trying to do some street witnessing. And I just thought, what would it be like to pastor a church in this place? Well, that's what it was like to pastor in Corinth. It was known so much so for the filth, the moral filth of the city, that if you wanted to give someone a derogatory remark, you would say to them, you're just living like a Corinthian. That meant you were either sexually immoral or a drunkard. You were living like a Corinthian. So the whole city became synonymous with sin. So literally, Corinth was sin city. You think Vegas has got it. No, no, no. Vegas had nothing on Corinth. So that just gives you a sense of the kind of culture that this city was part of and the kind of culture that this church was planted in. And I say planted because the Apostle Paul, God used him to start the church in Corinth. Remember on one of his missionary journeys, he comes from Athens. He goes to Corinth. He hadn't had a whole lot of success in Athens. A few people got saved, but then he goes to Corinth and he says, I want to bring nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what I'm going to preach here in Corinth. And he starts in the synagogue. They reject him as usual. And he says, fine. He washes the dirt off his feet. He says, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And he goes right next door. The synagogue is here. He goes right next door and he starts a church right next door to the synagogue. And then the ruler of the synagogue, or what you might say is the campus pastor, gets saved, becomes a follower of Jesus. And then uh, he can no longer be the ruler of the synagogue. So now he's part of the church and the church begins to grow from there. And God tells Paul to be at peace and be at ease because God says, I have many people in this city. And I'm sure Paul walked around the streets at night, just like I would have walked around the streets of Las Vegas and go, God, I don't see how you can have anybody here. I mean, this place, let's do the Sodom and Gomorrah thing. Just get rid of it. But not God. You see, God is a God of grace, right? He's a God of grace. So God tells Paul, there's many people here. And Paul stays in Corinth for a year and a half, which is the second longest only to Ephesus. He was in Ephesus for three years, but he stays in Corinth a year and a half. He worships with them. He helps to get them established. He helps to get them off on the right foot, spends time. Matter of fact, he says to them uh, later on in 1 Corinthians, he says, look, you guys may have 10,000 instructors, but you only have one father in Jesus Christ. I begot you. I begot you in Jesus Christ. So Paul had witnessed to them. He told them about Jesus. He led them to Christ. He baptized them. He walked with them. He fed them. He mentored them. He had a unique relationship with this church, which is interesting because the letter is very personal, more personal than the letter to the Romans, because Paul knows them more intimately, he knows them better. And so when he finds out what's going on, I assume, and I would imagine it's even more heartbreaking. Now, I don't know if you have starry-eyed visions of what the early church was like. Anybody, oh, I wish we were more like the early church. Watch what you asked for. This letter was written to the church in Corinth about 25 years after Christ was crucified and resurrected, about. So 25 years, not a whole lot of time, is it? 
And by that time, this church had become what I would call a schizophrenic church. The letter to the Corinthians is so full of important information because of the problems and the questions that the Corinthians were having. How many of you have ever been to a wedding where the text for the wedding was 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Love suffers long and is kind. Love never seeks its own. Love does not parade itself. And we just go, oh, that's such a beautiful passage on love. Well, you're going to find out that the reason Paul wrote that was as a condemnation against this loveless church in Corinth. He was saying to them, love is everything you guys are not. And that's why we have the love chapter, because Paul's trying to tell them, this is what love looks like, and you don't look like that. And we have the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, where they were divided on the resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul has to bring in a beautiful and comprehensive teaching on resurrection. They had issues about marriage, issues about relationship. I mean, there you are in Corinth, and you're married, just living your life, and you're doing your thing, and you hear about this Jesus, and you get saved. You give your life to Jesus. You become a follower of Jesus, but your husband doesn't. And now it creates division in the home, creates difficulty in the home. And so they're asking, what do I do? I mean, is it right? Should I divorce my unsaved husband, or what do we do? I mean, imagine the questions that would arise. Is that more spiritual? And so Paul has to answer that question. His answer is no, by the way, just to give you the heads up. But we'll see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll get great instruction on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. They would come to the table of the Lord and they're getting drunk and eating all the food and they're all selfishly behaving. So all of these beautiful things and truths that we get, we get because of this schizophrenic church in Corinth. Pastor, why do you call it a schizophrenic church? Well, the word schizo is a word that means to divide or tear. And it's right there in our text. If you just, just take a minute, look in your Bible. Verse 10, he says, I want there to be no divisions among you. The word divisions is the word schisma in Greek, which is where we get schism or schizo. It was a schizo church. And the word phrenos, where we get schizophrenic, this means mind. So you have a divided or a split mind. That's what schizophrenia is. And Paul says, I want there to be no schizo among you, no schism, but that you be perfectly joined together in the, what does it say there, church? In the same mind. See, they were schizophrenic. They were confused. And now Paul is trying to get them to come together, get them as a church to think clearly, to not be divided, but to be in unity. Not uniformity, not that they're all going to have to be exactly like each other. Corinth was a tapestry of culture, but that they would be saying the same thing. So the question as we come into chapter one is, how in the world does Paul do it? How do you get people who come from all over the cultural spectrum, all over the world in some ways, all over from different religious backgrounds? By the way, let me read this to you as well. Who are the people, when we speak of different backgrounds, who are the people that are listening to this letter? Who are the people in the church at Corinth? First Corinthians 6 tells us, Neither fornicators, which is sex outside of marriage, that would include temple prostitutes and others involved in sexual immorality. Don't you know that neither fornicators nor idolaters, those that worship idols, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you. He looks around the church and he says, I know where you guys have come from. I know what you used to be into. I know who you used to be. I know the filth used to hang out in. And he says, that's who you were. That's who this church is made up of. 
not a bunch of goody two-shoes that were born, you know, with a Bible in their hand. These are people from the wrong side of the tracks, people from rough backgrounds. By the way, thieves is mentioned here. Thieves can be carrying a briefcase and wearing a suit, right? So our minds tend to go to the gutter, you know, oh, the drug addict, prostitute, you know. But wait a second. Sometimes religious people can be thieves. Just because you're religious doesn't mean you're following Jesus. And sometimes you can be a businessman in one area of your life and be absolutely corrupt at it, right? So he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So we'll come back to that in a minute, just to give you a sense of who's reading this, who are these people, and what the culture around them. The problem that they're facing is that they're schizophrenic and the culture around them has infected the church as well. Isn't that the challenge we face? Is how do we keep from being influenced? How do we become an influence to the world around us rather than being influenced by the world around us? How do we keep our eyes on the Lord and live for him in the midst of a lot of, frankly, a darkness, divisiveness that's out there in the world and immorality? And that's what we're going to get from this letter. They were baby Christians. They refused to grow up. I mean, they had all kinds of problems. And so chapter one, again, begins with Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. I'm not going to go into details about who Sosthenes is. It's quite likely that he helped Paul. He maybe penned the letter for Paul. Paul dictated, Sosthenes wrote. You can read about Sosthenes in Acts chapter 18 if you want a little bit more about him. But we're introduced to Paul. And right off the mark, right in verse 1, just the fact that Paul is serving the Lord is a miracle. Paul was a religious guy, but he was not a nice guy. Anybody know somebody like that? Know someone who's a religious person, but they're not a nice person? That was Paul. He thought he was doing God a favor in what he was doing, but then he met Jesus Christ personally. And he uttered those awesome words, Lord, what do you want me to do? You ever said those words? Sometimes we come to church and it's all about what we want God to do for us. Go to church. Well, God, here's what I want you to do for me. But Paul said those awesome words, Lord, if you're going to say Lord, that means master. You can't say, Lord, here's what I want you to do for me. Show up at work sometime and tell your boss, here's what I want you to do for me. Try that out. See how long you keep your job. So Paul says, Lord, and the next words that have to follow are, what do you want me to do for you? And when Paul asked that question, God changed the whole direction of his life. And I don't know about you. I imagine for many of you, that's true. I know that for me, that's true. Sitting here, just like the Apostle Paul writing this letter to a church that exists because of God's work in his life, just me sitting here is a radical testimony. At one day in my life, I said, God, what do you want me to do for you? And for me, this is what it looks like. I don't know what it looks like for you. For Paul, it looked like becoming, well, you could write the word diplomat, messenger, Next to the word apostle, an apostle is just someone who's sent. A diplomat. You know what a diplomat is. The United States government has business to transact in a foreign country, so they appoint a person to go and enact business on behalf of America. So that person is not there to do what they want, right? Can we agree on that? That the diplomat is not there to do what they want. They are there to represent the authority of the United States of America. And that's what gives them authority. So when Paul says, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, he's just establishing his authority within the church. This is what God has called me to do. It wasn't my idea. This is what God has called me to do. And it's awesome. 
this the sense of my life has a different kind of purpose than it used to have. Paul was busy hurting the church, hurting people. Maybe that's your life. Maybe you've been busy hurting people. And God gets a hold of your life. He fills you with love. He fills you with his spirit. And now all of a sudden you used to hurt people, but now you've learned to love people. It's a radical change. And when you see it, listen to me, church, when you see it, you know it, right? Please, let's not reduce Christianity to showing up at church on Sunday. We know that's not what it's about. We know it's about living a transformed life. You need to be able to look at your life and somehow say, I'm not what I used to be. And that's what Paul says next to them. He's introduced his authority. Why can he say these things? Verse two, he says, now who he's writing to? To the church of God, which is at Corinth. It's not the church of Corinth. The church doesn't belong to the Corinthians, just like the church doesn't belong to me and you. We are the church of God. Did you notice I said we are? We are. He says to the church of God. The church is not a place. The church is people. And the word literally means called out ones to assemble. The church is a group of people invited out by God, invited out from the culture, invited out from the world, so to speak, to then gather together for the purposes and the glory of God. That's why we exist. That's who we are. But I think sometimes we forget that. If you're feeling schizophrenic, if you're feeling confused, maybe you need to be reminded that, number one, what we do here is not about us. We don't get to make the rules. We are the church. The word of speaks of ownership, doesn't it? This is the Bible of Steve. That means it's my Bible. Get your hands off of it. It's my Bible. My notes. I say that in jest. It's my Bible. The word of speaks of ownership. So the church is in Corinth. So God has real estate. God has people in Corinth. Isn't that what God told Paul? I have many people here. That's what he's saying here. It's the church, the called out ones of God. And then he gives a synonymous definition. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Does your Bible have the words to be in italics there right before saints? Called to be saints. When you see words in italics in your Bible, that means that as the translators were putting it together, if it didn't flow quite right, they add a couple of words to help connect thoughts, to help make it more clear for us. But in this case, I think maybe it confuses things a little bit. Because if you say, well, you're called to be a saint, you can use that as a pressure point to say, hey, get your life together. You're not being who you're supposed to be. You're called to be a saint. But it reads differently if it says called saints. There's a difference between what I'm supposed to be versus what I already am. You see, he says to them, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. This is something that they are already. This is their identity. You are. It's not something you're becoming, not something you're figuring out, not something that you earn or you have to live up to, so to speak. It's something that you are. Listen, can I tell you, church? You are sanctified. You are. Well, I don't feel that way. Pastor, I don't even know what sanctified means. All right, let's deal with that, right? Let's deal. What does it mean to be sanctified? Now, you know this in a sense without knowing that you know it. How many of you have kids? you got young kids. How many of you have church clothes that your kids wear? Or maybe you grew up in church and your parents had church clothes. Does anybody know what I'm talking about or just me? So my mom didn't like to do laundries. All right, we had church clothes and those were the clothes I wore to church. They were special. They were dedicated. When I was with God, this is the clothes I had on. But then when I went home, God forbid I try to play in my church clothes. 
lest I receive the wrath of a mom who doesn't like to do laundry. So you got to take the church clothes off, and then you can put on your play clothes, and those are the ones you can get dirty. My mom made me wear tough skins. I wanted Wranglers so bad. I need counseling. Anybody else my generation? Any other tough skin wearers out there? Somebody knows what I'm talking about. Tough skins were not cool. And so I had to wear tough skins because they were cheaper and they last long. Anyway, I got my own problems. You got your problems. Uh, <laughs> but we had to change clothes. So we understand that there are certain clothes that are for a certain purpose. The problem with that illustration is, is that it expresses the same compartmentalization. You know what I mean when I say compartmentalization. There's a compartment. So my church clothes are for my church life. But then when I get home, I take off those clothes and I go and I play. I get to do what I want to do. I endured church for a little time. Now, you see, some of us have our church life and then we have our other life. You come here and you show up, but then when you go home, you take off your church life and you become whoever it is you want to be. Then I have my clean life that I bring to church, but then I have my dirty life that I put on when I go home. What Paul is saying to them, and you got to catch this, he says, you are sanctified. That means you only have one life. Like if you wore your church clothes all the time and your mom was watching you all the time, you'd be a little more hesitant to go out and get dirty, right? Think about the prodigal son. The prodigal son lives in his father's house and then he decides he wants to go get filthy. He decides to pick up party lifestyle, heads out of town, gets his inheritance, and off he goes. His money runs out, his friends leave, and he's stuck where? In the pigsty. He has to get a menial job feeding dirty, unclean animals, pigs. It was an embarrassment to him. It was a shame to him. And it was from that place where he came to himself, the Bible says. And he said, what am I doing here? I don't belong here. I am not a pig. This is where pigs are. I'm not a pig. I need to get back where I belong to my father's house. And so off he went back to his father's house. And Peter uses a similar analogy, if I'm remembering correctly, like a dog returning to his vomit or a pig to his slop. Pigs belong in filth, right? That's where they are. They belong in filth because they're pigs. But you can clean a pig up, dress them up, put a bow on them, take them to the state fair, parade them up and down in front of the judges. The judges go, oh, what a nice pig. What a nice pig. But then you take the pig home, turn them out in the pasture, and what happens? Right back to the slop. Why? Because it's still a pig. Because there's been no transformation, and that's what pigs do. Listen, this is where I want to take you guys. Paul is speaking to them about their identity. They're no longer pigs. They're children of God. They have been picked up out of the pigsty, that prostitute, that temple prostitute from the Aphrodite temple. She hears the gospel. She's cleansed by God, by the blood of Christ. And she's told, you're not that anymore. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to do those things. You don't have to hang out in those places. You got a new life and this new life, it's set apart. Your life now is lived for God, not for that stuff. Like, whoa, I should think about then what I do. You see, identity always precedes behavior. The hard thing comes is when you try to change your behavior without changing who you are. God first has to do a work in who you are and then your behavior will follow. It takes time. You know, we're works in progress, aren't we, church? We have been set apart, but we're also being set apart to those who are sanctified. One more note for those of you that have come from the Catholic church, because you've been taught that a saint 
Well, there's five actual steps. I looked it up to becoming a saint within the Catholic Church. By the way, the word saint comes from the Latin word sanctus, which is the Latin version of the Greek for holy. It's just a Latin word. So first, to be a saint, you have to be dead. And I don't think that people in Corinth are dead. So at least five years after you're dead, that's when they can begin to investigate your life. And then they do a whole investigation. That's step two. They see how you lived and what virtue you had. And then the Pope looks it over. And if the Pope likes what he sees, then he gives you the title of venerable. And then you have to have verified miracles in your life. Not miracles that you've done, but when people have prayed to you that they've received a miracle because of praying to you, because that's seen as proof that you're in heaven. Then after that, you're canonized. So those are the five steps of sainthood, but I don't see any of those steps here to you. And I say this not because I'm a Catholic church basher. Please understand, there's wonderful people in the Catholic church. But what I'm saying is when it comes to identity, some have misunderstood thinking that a saint is something that only special Christians are. Only certain people are. What Paul is saying to this messed up, schizophrenic, immoral church in Corinth, he's reminding them, you guys are saints. You are. You are set apart for God. Do you see the difference? I hope you understand that sainthood is not something reserved for others. You were sanctified, how? In Christ Jesus. Sainthood, being a saint or a holy person, is what you receive because of the nature of Jesus Christ, not because of you. It's because of who you're attached to. So now he's going to tell them what they have. He's told them who they are. He says to them again, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the common introduction. I'm sorry. One more thing before I go on. I mentioned imagining maybe this prostitute from the temple of Aphrodite and she gets saved and how her life might change. Do you think she would immediately feel holy? Do you think she would maybe still feel somewhat ashamed when she sees the truth about sexual immorality? Do you think she might still feel a little bit ashamed of what she did? Absolutely. Do you think she would feel close to God? Maybe not. But Paul doesn't say to those who feel sanctified. Did you see that? This is the reality. And if your reality is set, then your feelings will eventually catch up to the truth of who you really are. So just wanted to mention that. Verse four, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Jesus Christ that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So I'm definitely going to have words with Paul when I see him in heaven because of his terrible run-on sentences. I mean, there is so much there. So please don't leave here thinking that I have elaborated on all of the intricate truths of the book of 1 Corinthians. Look, we're just going to scratch the surface. We're just going to touch on some highlights. I mean, every sentence is a sermon series. So I want to say that we'd be in the book forever if we did it like that. So my intention is to give you, just to give an overview and highlight some things so that you can go home and study some more. Spend some time with it yourself. Hear from the Lord. Let God highlight different things to you. But for now, what I appreciate is that as he gets through the introduction, in verse four, he begins, a lot of his letters, he begins with something to give thanks for. He doesn't want to just hit him right out of the starting gate, right? That doesn't always go so well. You know that when you come in this building, if you're greeted warmly and kindly, which I hope you were, you're more open to than what's preached. But if you come in the door and someone criticizes you right away, 
that would change your tone of ability to listen to what's said after that, right? Am I right or wrong? We've been there. We've experienced that. So that's our hope. We're greeting people as they come in because it opens their hearts to hear what might come next. Well, Paul knows the same thing. He feels the same way here as he opens the letter. The problem is, is he's struggling to think about something to be thankful for with them because they're a mess. I mean, again, they're immoral. They're selfish. They're, they're divided. They're schizophrenic. There's factions and fighting. And he's going, I got to give thanks for something. He says, oh, okay, I know. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Jesus Christ. I can't be thankful for much, but I am really thankful that God has given you grace. Amen to that. Can anybody else agree with me on that? We may not be able to do it. There may be people that you know in this church. I'm having a hard time giving thanks to you right now, but man, I'm thankful that God loves you because I'm struggling with it right now. I'm thankful that God has been kind to you because if it was up to us to earn God's blessings ourselves, we'd be in sorry shape, right? So when he looks at that church, he sees a church not living separate. He sees a church that looks an awful lot like the culture they are in the midst of. But when he gives thanks, he says, I see the work of God among you. I see that God has gifted you guys. And I'm not going to go into the details. First Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14 talk about in detail. He says, you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. So these are spiritual gifts that God has given them apart from their behavior, separate from their earning them. These are just blessings that God has given them. Word of knowledge, word of wisdom, prophecy, these things that they're utilizing that God is speaking through them in the midst of their assembly. And that was great because the things they were saying to each other in their own power weren't so nice. But God was there and it says, you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. Did you notice the word enriched? Remember what I said about the culture in Corinth? Was it poor or rich? It was a wealthy city, tons of commerce. And I wonder when Paul reminds them that they were enriched, I wonder if Paul doesn't know that there's a certain part of them that looks out at the Corinthian world and there's a little bit of them that's jealous of what they see. You ever had that feeling, church? You see people, well, Asaph writes it in Psalm 73. He says, when I saw the wicked prosper, it kind of bummed me out. Kind of made me a little upset, made me confused. Why do the wicked prosper? And you look out, you see people living corrupt lives. They're thieves, they're immoral, they're doing all, they're crooked businessmen, and they seem to thrive. And then at the end, Asaph says, but then I went to the house of the Lord and I remembered their end. I remembered that that life ain't going to last forever. That blessing, nobody's buried and no hearse carries a U-Haul behind it, they say, right? You don't see a hearse driving down the road with a tow a U-Haul with all the stuff in it. So I think that Paul is reminding them again, not just who they are, but the blessings that they have. Don't be jealous of what you see wicked people doing. They may be temporarily enjoying themselves. I say enjoying because you know, man, the wind has a whirlwind, right? And it, it may be temporarily feel good, but it leaves you in a world of hurt in the long run. So Paul says, don't be jealous of them. You've been enriched in every way, utterance and knowledge. And even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, that was the, just the proof that God was working in them so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end. He reminds them that there is an end, that there is a time when Jesus Christ will return to get his church. Therefore, I think, again, you can make the step to say, hey, who should we be living for? I mean, you can be out there living that life, living in that world. And if Jesus came back, would he find you there worshiping with his people or would he find you out there living in immorality? He reminds them that there'd be an end. And ultimately, verse nine, I think is really good. At the end of all this, he says, 
all this is happening, not because I'm faithful or I'm consistent, but because God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So again, their fellowship is with Jesus. Now, in the next few verses, he has to outline what is the problem. We looked at this earlier. What is he trying to address? What has got him so upset and so worried about this church? Verse 10, he says, now I plead with you. It's pretty serious when someone is pleading with you, right? It means they've got something really heavy on their heart that they want to talk to you about. He says, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you. So we see the problems clearly revealed. This is why Paul's writing the letter to address the divisions, the contentions, the warring, the strife that's going on there in the church. How many of you have ever been to a church where this has been happening, where the church was just an absolute mess? Anybody? Probably would say everybody, because we're no different than the church in Corinth. We are Listen, are we not prone to the same sins that everybody else has been prone to throughout history? Are we not prone to struggling and warring and fighting with people about opinions and things that are really less important than they should be? So he says, no divisions. And again, that's the word schizo. We talked about that before. They were schizophrenic. What does he mean when he says, I want you all to speak the same thing? Does he mean I want you all to say exactly the same words? Well, he couldn't mean that. I mean, we're all different, unique people. God's expectation is that we're not reading from a script, right? Have you ever met Christians like that where they just seem to be reading from a script and you're like, where's the heart? Where's the personal nature of that? Yeah, no, no, no. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I want you to speak the same thing at the root of what you're thinking about that will cause you to talk about Christ. That's what he's working toward. And we speak the same thing when we have a meeting, we have discussion, we have a conflict and we both say, you know what? What does Christ say about this? What would Jesus do with this? What does the Bible say about this? Then we're talking the same thing. You ever been to a meeting where people just are coming from different angles and it's a nightmare? Or what if our choir decided that they'd get up here and they'd all sing a different song? How would that be? Would you come to that choir performance? It'd be a train wreck, an absolute train wreck because nobody's on the same page. Can I tell you that that's what life in the Corinthian church was like? So, They're all singing a different tune. They're all on a different page. And Paul is trying to get them on the same page so that there were no divisions. But instead he says, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind. I want you to think the same way about the things you talk about. I want you to come from the same baseline, the same perspective. Look, church, it's got to start with Jesus. He doesn't say, I want you to feel the same thing. Do you notice that? He's not dressing them on the level of their feelings. I said this before and I'm going to say it again. I'm going to keep saying it because I meet too many Christian people that when it comes time, there's a difference of opinion or there's a drama or there's a contention that all of a sudden what God's word said is out the window. It's all about how I feel. Now what really matters is just how I feel. It's touched me emotionally. How many of you have made a bad decision when you were deciding based on how you felt at the time? Look, we've been dealing with this whole thing in Charlottesville this weekend, right? And the issue is, it creates a guttural response, a feeling response. Then people don't think reasonably. They don't act reasonably. They're not talking peacefully. It's everything about how I feel. This just makes me feel this way. And then I act on my feelings. So you've got that going on in the church in Corinth. And Paul says, instead, I want you to be perfectly joined together. It's a medical word. Maybe you've had a broken bone in your life. And you know, you break a bone and you just look at it and go, yeah, that's not supposed to be like that. My arm is not supposed to be two elbows in it. If you're broken your arm, you know what I'm talking about. You know, the thing is dangling there and you're, oh, 
that's painful. And the word here that Paul uses is a medical term that means to take something that's broken and set it straight so it can heal. To mend or to put back together to show up what's been torn. And that's what Paul wants for them because it's hard, it's painful, and it's not right when something is broken. For it has been, verse 11, has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So hang with me just a few more minutes. We now get a little bit of a sense of what specific divisions he's addressing here are about. And they surround the teachers and the leaders in the church at the time. It wasn't just that they had difference of opinion. How many of you know we can have and we enjoy? I'm glad you guys have different opinions than me. I am so glad. What a boring place if we all had the same opinion. We have different opinions. That's why there's different denominations. It's okay. Church, listen to me. I'm going to tell you a secret. Different denominations is okay. It's okay. Some people like tradition. Some people like old hymns. Some people like contemporary music. You're here because you like the kind of ministry we have here. That's your opinion. But if we invited someone from a different church background in here, they may not like it. They go, well, where are the candles? Where's the guy wearing the clothes up there in the front? Where's he? You know, who's this guy? Are you Reverend Steve? Wait a second, wait a second. If someone calls me Reverend Steve, I usually say, you're new here, aren't you? Is this your first time? Yeah. Just call me Steve. They call Jesus, Jesus, you can call me Steve. It's okay. But there's certain things we get used to. And listen, Paul's not saying here to them that it's wrong to have opinions. So they're not saying, oh, I like Paul and I like Apollos and I like Cephas. Did you notice the wording? Remember we talked about that wording of ownership? They're saying, I am of Paul. I'm identifying with Paul. I'm identifying with Cephas. Now, Paul, hey, he was the founder of the church. There was the Paul faction. Paul founded the church. Hey, we believe that if our founding father did it, we have to do the same thing. We, he's the one that we need to follow because he founded the church in the 1700s and we, how dare we do anything different than we did in 1700. You see how you can easily fall into that? He becomes the most important thing in the church, that founding father. Well, then there was Peter. Well, he was, you know, that Cephas is another word for Peter. Well, he was Jewish and he was the original preacher. And then there was Apollos who was a great speaker. When Apollos taught the Bible study, Everybody was on the edge of their seats. You can read about him in the book of Acts. Apollos was a great orator from the city of Alexandria in Egypt. Very well educated. He could command a room. And people would show up at church in Corinth and they'd say, hey, who's preaching today? Some would say, oh, Paul's preaching today. They'd say, ah, get in their car and drive out. I only come when Apollos is teaching. What? It happens around here. You know, for a long time, I'd go away on vacation. I wouldn't tell anybody I was going. Because I didn't want you to go, oh, Steve's not there. I appreciate the sentiment. And so we're just not going to go to church today. I'm like, well, have you put the wrong thing first? Are you struggling with the Corinthian sin? Yeah, I appreciate that you like when I teach, that you learn. When Dave teaches, people learn. He has a different style. When Nick teaches, he has a different style. And it's great. We're all bringing something to the table of Christ through our personality. So not wrong to have opinions. The problem is when you identify so strongly with one, that you take it personally, how dare anybody else like anybody else, but accept what I like. It's a challenge to your identity. And that indicates a problem. Oh, you know it. Sometimes I'll ask a person, hey, are you a believer? Do you follow Jesus Christ? Are you saved? And I say, well, I'm a Methodist. And I say, huh, that tells me nothing. Well, I grew up going to the Methodist church. Well, are you born again? 
well, I've been part of the Methodist church. No, 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 get away from that. You see, I am of the Methodist church or I'm of the Lutheran church or I'm of the Baptist church or I'm of Calvary Chapel. You see what happens there? We elevate rather than just appreciate what we have here. We tend to elevate it as more important and more spiritual than anybody else. See, a person that is more spiritually minded becomes less denominationally minded. And so Paul says here, is Christ divided? Please say no. That's a rhetorical question. No, Christ is not divided. Was Paul crucified for you? No, Paul was not crucified for you. He's saying you've identified with a human being instead of with Christ. And that's when someone says, are you a Christian? Well, I'm a Lutheran. Wait a second. Did Martin Luther die for you? No. I'm a Calvinist. Wait a second. You may like the teachings of John Calvin, but please don't identify yourself as a Calvinist because what that says is I put the writings of Calvin above Jesus Christ. If you're going to find your identity, when someone asks you, have you been born again? Are you a believer? Do you go to church? I am follower of Jesus Christ. I happen to like the Lutheran church. I happen to like the Methodist church. I happen to like Calvary Chapel but I appreciate that you like your church. And let's get down to the real heart of the matter is if Jesus is Lord of that church, if Jesus is the head of that body, then we're going to be together in heaven, right? We're going to be together in heaven. So we have to be very, very careful about elevating people to the place that only God is meant to hold. Only Jesus Christ can hold. Appreciate, but please don't elevate. I'm of Paul. I'm of Paulus. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, I was baptized in the what church? And that means I'm a, wait a second. Does that mean you can never step foot in any other kind of church ever because you were baptized in this church? And I'm not picking on anybody. You know that, right? What's important is Jesus Christ glorified and is the word of God taught. That's what matters. Put anything you want on the sign. Who cares? What matters is, are we glorifying Jesus Christ? Is he the one that is the head of the body? You can say amen to that. Amen. I mean, you feel that way, don't you? I hope you do. You should. So Paul said, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. Paul says, I never meant to draw people to myself. This is not Steve's church. Hey, where do you go to church? Well, I go to Steve's church. No, please, please. <laughs> don't do that to me. I don't have a church. Paul, I'm not interested in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So what Paul is doing is he's telling them to get over your divisions, get over your schizophrenia. You've got to have this optical thing going on. You've got to be, hang with me, cross-eyed. Can I tell you that, church? You've got to be cross-eyed. It was goofy when you were growing up if you knew someone that was cross-eyed. But what Paul is telling us, this is eternally crucial for you. You've got to keep your eyes and your full focus and your full identity in Jesus Christ. Enjoy your church. Enjoy the theology, but keep your eyes on Jesus. Amen? Amen.